Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This podcast is recorded on the lands of the Jajawarong and the Wadawarong people of the Eastern Kulin Nation and we wish to acknowledge them as traditional owners. We would also like to pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and Aboriginal elders of other communities who may be listening. All right. Uh, okay. Let's do it. Let's do it. Um, I was going to say good morning and welcome. <laughs> she can't remember. It's been a couple of days. She's forgotten what to do. (laughs) Hello and welcome to Chicks 3, the podcast that is rewriting the history books to include the women that were written out of them. My name's Annie and as always, every week we're joined by the delightful Phoebe Wilkins. Hello and welcome to your daily dose of us. Of us. Daily, yes. weekly, weekly. But you can yeah. listen to it on repeat if you want to. They could. People could be listening mm. to us daily if they if they so felt like it. This is the podcast where we tell you a story about a woman in history who may have been forgotten, who may have just simply been written out of the history books. And last week we learnt that the term for this is called the Matilda effect. So named after a woman called Matilda a suffragette from back in the day uh, who basically said that she was fed up, sick and tired of men taking the credit for women's successes, mainly in science. Good on you, Tilly, Tilda. Now I believe we have a correction. Yes, yes. Uh, So we did tell you about... um, Con Girl in last week's episode, and I yeah. did say it was on Paramount Plus. It turns out that it is actually on Seven Plus, so you'll Correct. be able to watch it free streaming, but um, produced by Paramount Plus. So go Correct. watch it, stream it through your devices, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, enjoy. Hopefully, you know, I feel like we're in our scamming era, like we were in our true crime era, like not you know, us. Not us. We're not scammers. No, not, not us. us. No, we. But the 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 podcast world in general, I think, is come into the scamming era. It seems like every second podcast or new podcast that comes out is about some kind of scam. And I found another one, and it is a unbelievable story. And I'll just say, don't do what I did and listen to the No Filter Mia Friedman podcast episode about this story because. Spoiler alert for basically the whole podcast. So go and listen to the podcast. So the podcast is called Believe in Magic and it is about a charity that was set up kind of like um, Make-A-Wish Foundation for Mm -hmm. children who are um, ill, set up by a girl and her mother. And that's all I'm going to tell you because it is – there are massive things that happen within this, uh, the course of kind of, you know, this girl's life and it takes, every episode kind of takes a bit of a twist. So very disturbing mm. but highly recommend. I think the whole scamming thing too is, you know, true crime is really scary and, oh, my God, that's so far removed. But I think with scammers you go, 
oh my god like that could have been me you look at it and think you're an idiot like how did you whatever the case may be but then some things like the samantha as a party one i don't know whether i would do anything different so it's really quite relatable which is scary but i think that's why you get really invested in it as well totally do you have a historical fact for us today i do I do. So right now, as we record, we're in the thick of football final season. So yes. by the time you hear this, it'll be over. Oh, um, the crows. Oh, I don't know. Crows? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's not 1996. Like, <laughs> I don't know. That's just all, that's all I know. Okay. Oh, the pies. <laughs> there you go. That's a bit more relevant to say. <laughs> got my birds mixed up. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so whichever code you follow, um, it is final season, but also we have seen the incredible rise of the Matildas and the effect that that's had on all of us. Mm-hmm. But have you ever thought about what your sports team wears on the field? Not the short shorts, I'm not talking, you know, think, talking I'm about gonna the top s- half. I'm going to say that's a hard no because okay. well, I, don't have a, I don't have a team and <laughs> clearly from, as you can tell, from my, from my crow's call, uh, no. So <laughs> Anyway, we'll talk about the top half. So okay. would you call it a Guernsey or a jersey that a, a football jersey. player is a jersey? Okay. So, well, tech, technically you would be correct with either of those. AFL players tend to wear what we would know as a Guernsey and rugby and soccer players would wear a jersey. So the difference is that it is dependent on where the wool came from that the jumpers were made from originally. So this is not the case now, but originally. Um, So a Guernsey was made from wool from the sheep from Guernsey, one of the Channel Islands (gasps) Mm -hmm. near the French coast. Yeah. Whereas the jersey was made from the wool produced from the sheep on Jersey in the Channel Islands. Wow, look I at know, you. I know. So Guernsey was originally a seaman's knitted woolen jumper and the knitting industry in Guernsey uh, has been a mainstay on the island that can be dated back to the 15th century. And Jersey is also a knitted jumper and the island was famous for its knitting trade that dates back to medieval times. Wow, there you yeah. go. There you go. I am going, to, I mean, this the, the grand final will be over by the time this episode comes out. However, I am going to the grand final on Saturday mm-hmm. and I am going to tell anyone who will listen now, that are fact. You, are you going for the crows? <laughs> so today I'm actually going to tell you about two women who are connected by the art of dance. I'm going to tell you about a lady called Sonia Ravid and a lady called Louisa Mary Lightfoot. Lightfoot, and she's a dancer. Isn't that beautiful? Love it. So beautiful. (laughs) Born on the 24th of January 1902 in Latvia, Sonia Ravid was Jewish and one of four children born to Isaac and Olga Ravid. Although at the time of her birth, technically Latvia was a part of Russia and the Ravids then made their way uh, to live in St. Petersburg. Eventually, they were driven out by war and revolution. But in 1921, Sonia then moved to Berlin to live with an aunt and it was here that she witnessed and then studied modern dance in Dresden under the tutelage of Mary Wigman, a German dancer and choreographer who was notable as a pioneer of expressionist dance, dance therapy and movement training without point shoes. Oh, mm-hmm. mm. 
Sonia studied under Mary Wigman for several years and earned her diploma from the Wigman School in 1928 before she branched out on her own. Mary describes Sonia as a strong and idiosyncratic talent. It was important for Sonia not to imitate Mary and therefore cultivated her own style of dance that included more of an emphasis on facial expressions, something Mary largely discouraged. Right. I know it's, yeah. my, it's my sort of dancing. <laughs> Just all in the face. I know, right. <laughs> Sonia said, ours is a dance of the whole body, not the feet only, and it is the expression, not just the pose that counts, and the face must dance exactly like the body. By the early 1930s, the world was in the grips of the Great Depression and Germany was not spared. As well as economic crisis, Germany was also facing political and social crises and in September 1930 witnessed the rise of the National Socialism and the Nazis' landslide victories in their elections. Although it was a time of the unknown, there was upheaval and confusion throughout Germany and where once the avant-garde movements in artistic and creative circles were highly regarded, things were already beginning to change. And Sonia and her family were Jewish and would have felt the early unrest. Oh, yeah. In 1932, Sonia arrived in Melbourne under the pretense she was visiting her sister Rosa and her husband Dolia Rybush, who was a theatre producer and co-owner of Bush's Confectionery Company. Mm. Sonia claimed that she'd be staying for only a few months. However, there was speculation that she had always intended to remain in Australia and was escaping the escalating conditions in Germany. There had been some issues upon her arrival to Melbourne when she attempted to disembark from the ship when she was refused permission to land as she did not possess the £100 landing money and the, and the obligatory return ticket that was required for genuine visitors of European race or descent who had been unable to organise a permit before arrival. Oh, a Mr yeah. Patkin of the P&O Lloyd Shipping Company intervened on her behalf, requesting that Sonia be allowed to land despite her lack of finances and documentation. Mr Patkin stated that there would be a preliminary concert arranged for the celebrated dancer from Europe with a view to arranging theatrical promoters to attend. With this view to employment and the guarantee of support from her sister and brother-in-law, Sonia was allowed to enter Australia. Over the next few months, she applied for various visa extensions, which eventually turned into a permanent residency certificate in 1934. Imagine coming all that way and being told you can't enter. Yeah. Go turn around and come go back because that trip would have been probably at that time two months. Yeah. 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 It's not just to jump on a plane and God no. God Mm. I know someone who actually like flew to LA and couldn't um had there was some issue with something, I don't know, working visa or something, and had to turn around, like literally get on the next plane and come home. Like that is bad enough. Like, that sounds awful. Being on a boat. And, um, and it's weird that they didn't check all, they wouldn't have made, I mean, you know, checked all that before letting someone board and go before through. Before landing, yeah. Any, yeah. Anyway, different time. Some, it was a different time. Different times. <laughs> Only four months after she had arrived in Melbourne, she gave her first public dance recital called Modern Dance Individualism at Central Hall in Little Collins Street. She received received overwhelmingly positive reviews. However, it appears that Sonia's modern expressionist dance was still viewed as somewhat of a novelty for Melburnians. This didn't last long as 12 months and several recitals later, Sonia was being embraced and praised for her personal brand of expressionism. 
Sonia first started teaching dance classes out of her sister Rose's home in Caulfield in 1933. In one of her advertisements and promotional pamphlets, she described her particular style of modern art dance as the thorough development of the body in perfect harmony, as well as the development of imagination, concentration and expression of any emotional feeling combined with rhythmical and musical sense. That all goes through my head when I bust a move. I know. They also loved a wordy advertisement. Oh, they yeah. Like to get all the words. It was like hitting the word count for an essay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, worth. In 1935, she began conducting a medico-social experiment on a group of poor children from the slums of Fitzroy to see whether they could distinguish between hygienic and unhygienic practices through dance education. From her observations, yeah, I know. So this is, it sounds really bizarre. Yes. <laughs> but think of it like this. Did you, oh, you might have been after your time, but did you ever visit Harold in the van? <laughs> oh, my God, that sounds so bad. I don't <laughs> Any, okay, anyone that went to primary school, in, maybe it was just a Victorian thing too. In the, yes. In the 90s yeah. will know Harold. Okay, don't, I a, do not know Harold. He was a giraffe puppet. Okay. And he taught you about... Um, Oh, I don't know, like brushing your teeth, health things. I think. Okay, yeah. Anyway, this man would come to your school and yes. you'd sit in there, and we yeah. had a anyway. similar. We did have a similar a thing. Yes, mm. I do remember something. So when, like so when I was school. researching this, this is that was what I equated it to okay. in modern in modern day times. Okay, mm. okay, yes, got it. So from Sonia's observations, she concluded that dance was a had a cleansing capacity, performing a sort of physical and spiritual bath. And not only did it teach children how to identify hygienic and unhygienic practices, but imparted a more hygienic constitution. She took a great interest in how dance might help improve the lives of needy children in Melbourne and began to offer free dance lessons and health classes to these children in Fitzroy. She also began to give benefit recitals and published a pamphlet about her ideas on the subject of hygiene titled do some children distinguish light from dark? Oh, and oh. created an educational program on oral hygiene titled Little Fool and Her Adventures, where she taught audiences how to brush their teeth correctly and portrayed the painful cons- consequences of poor dental hygiene. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The City of Melbourne's medical officer, John Dale, publicly praised her efforts and parents were advised to enrol their children in her classes. During this time in 1936, she also began teaching dance at her own studio at 465 Collins Street, which she called the Sonia Ravid School of Modern Dance, later known as the Sonia Ravid School of Dance, Art and Body Culture. This name change reflecting the shift towards dance as a public health project. She promoted her school as ensuring physical well-being and lasting health and provided lessons to correct specific health defects such as obesity, flat feet, unshapely hands, self-consciousness and shyness. Unshapely hands. Imagine realising you had or being told you had unshapely hands and having to go and get them fixed. I know, I don't know. (laughs) Put on a pair of gloves. Uh, And I will also say I think it's a bit of a stretch to go from dancing to teeth oral hygiene yeah but apparently it was really well received and a lot of you can actually listen to the score on youtube so a lot of it actually has to do with um it 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 was done in three parts and a lot of it had to do with you know that really dramatic 
you've got a cavity, you're going to lose your teeth. <laughs> cavity, the musical. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. It's not quite the vagina monologues, but you know. No. <laughs> In 1936, she was promoting her method as not only a way to help keep fit and healthy, but also as a means of acquiring a consciousness of cleanliness. Not only did she open a studio on Collins Street, she also opened the second studio location in East St Kilda. In 1937, five years after her arrival, Sonia became a permanent Australian citizen and renounced her Latvian or Russian nationality as it was then. In 1938 and 1939, she also spent time in Auckland teaching and performing with the support of the Young Women's Christian Association, or the YWCA. In an article in the Australian Women's Weekly from 1938, they praised Sonia's methods and wrote that Miss Sonia Ravid of Melbourne, considered one of the foremost exponents of the art of dance, gives much time to teaching children from the slum areas interpretive dancing and appreciation of beauty through movements. To assist the funds of the Mission for the Streets and Lanes, which helps these children, Miss Ravid will give a dance recital at the Church of England Grammar School. Oh. So she, yeah, raising money for these yeah. kids as well. Yeah, lovely. Although it was her adopted country, Sonia was also very community-minded and believed in the utter necessity of being humane, of helping each other. She also believed in the power of art to uplift, of art to bring people together and for the mind and soul. Sonia said, it is a culture which helps to destroy evil, to create love, to believe in the existence of God. It is the culture of the body, soul, mind, which one ought to exercise daily. One ought indeed take daily a bodily, mental and spiritual bath. Oh, that's lovely. I agree. She's she's a bit ahead of her time too, I think, when it comes to... Mindfulness. Mindfulness, absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. As well as her hygiene and educational movements, in 1940 she also created another topical dance piece called The Bushfire Drama, which referenced the severe and devastating bushfire season in Victoria in 1939. Mm -hmm. As well as her performances on stage, during the late 1930s and early 1940s, Sonia was also an enthusiastic writer and lover of literature and was a regular presenter on radio stations 3AR and 3LO, where she would perform spoken word recitals of dramatic works or literary criticisms of Russian masters. Her performance on stage was not the only thing that brought criticism as she also became a familiar face on the art scene and her presence at events was often remarked upon. Many of those remarks were about their propensity to wear, wait for it, flat shoes both on stage and off. What? I know. Crazy. I she thinking Unbelievable. Sonia did not chase fame or recognition and for the latter part of her life was very much removed from the spotlight of the stage and her social enterprises and by the early 1940s was rarely seen. Sonia Ravid died in 1945 in Melbourne at the age of just 43 years old. Mm. She is widely credited as one of the first to introduce modern interpretive dance to Victoria. Wow. Mm. But let's backtrack a little bit and I'm going to tell you about this mm-hmm. other chick who is yes. connected to Sonia and her name is Louisa Mary Lightfoot. Louisa was born on the 22nd of May 1902 in Yangari in Western Victoria, just northwest of Warrnambool. Louisa was the daughter of Charles Lightfoot, a school teacher, and Mary Graham. She had always loved dancing but saw no way to pursue it as a profession. Louisa excelled at school and won exhibitions in drawing and maths. And then in 1920, her father, who seemed somewhat of a progressive, sent her to study architecture at the University of Melbourne. 
Three years later, in 1923, Louisa graduated with her Diploma of Architecture from the University of Melbourne, the first woman to do so. I was going to say, there wouldn't have been many women doing architecture back then. No. Initially I thought, oh, drawing and maths, what a weird combination. Uh But then, you know, that makes sense. Yeah. Architecture. Absolutely. So while she was a student at university, she began a four-year apprenticeship in the architectural office of Walter Burley Griffin and Marion Marnie Griffin in Melbourne, mm. two people you may have heard about. Yes. Yes. I've heard of, well, I've heard of him. Mm. And she, uh, Marion, his wife, had a lot more to do with Canberra than she is given credit for. So she's I'm probably sure. someone that we should uh, we should chat about one I'm day. Sure. As well. I'm sure. Yes. In late 1924 and still working for the Griffins, Louisa moved with them to Castle Crag, their newly designed utopian neighbourhood on the lower north shore of Sydney. Louisa was to be Marion's companion and very reluctant cook, as well as a draftswoman and designer in Walter's Sydney office. However, whilst in Sydney, Marion encouraged Louisa to renew her interest and passion for dance that she had discovered as a child. Her passion was reignited when she saw Anna Pavlova tour Australia for the first time in 1926. Louisa would later say that watching her dance was a revelation. Mm. After two years of studying dance, whilst continuing her architectural work, Louisa left the Griffins and opened her own dance school where she was able to teach children. However, through the years she had spent with them, she'd been introduced to avant-garde and artistic circles that the Griffins moved in, and here she met Misha Berlikov, who she persuaded to teach her the Russian mazurka, a type of folk dance. Okay. Mm. Last week I said, oh, you do all the science-y talks that we can't. <laughs> and now I'm doing all the, <laughs> I've, got all, all I've got all the European. <laughs> I know. Yep. Yep. Uh, Louisa and Michelle worked together preparing folk dances for charity performances and amateur operas. These were popular during the 1930s when the world was in the grips of the Great Depression when people needed some relief. The charity organisations that they performed for were all greatly impacted by the Depression and therefore were chosen to help alleviate some of their stresses. At this time, Louisa and Misha also went on to establish the Lightfoot Berlikov Classic Dance School, which became the first Australian ballet to stage Coppelia in the Savoy Theatre in Sydney. This was most definitely a first in Australian ballet, as previously only companies from overseas who were visiting Australia turned on full-length performances. This production was the starting block for professional ballet in Australia. And was, it was the school was called Lightfoot. I, I just, know. I still can't. I, I love it. It's great. It's, yes. <laughs> so good. <laughs> so good. <laughs> Louisa also continued her dancing education and did classes in the technique of Mary Wigman, trained briefly in dance with Daphne Dean at the Sydney Conservatorium of Music, as well as training with Sonia Ravid. Ah, there she is. There she is. She went on to choreograph and dance several ballets a year throughout the 1930s, as well as composing her own original shows. Pupils remembered her to be aloof, a strict disciplinarian and an inspired choreographer. In 1937, she and Berlikov travelled to London and Paris where they secured the rights to perform a number of new ballets. So travelling to Europe was the only way in which to obtain the scores and permissions of ballets. Oh. Mm. Yeah, they could. As easy as an email. Yeah, they couldn't just send the file. Mm, exactly. It was whilst she was in Europe that she attended classes with famous Russian emigre teachers and also took classes in modern Spanish and Hindu dance. She became inspired by a 
performance by the Indian Uday Shankar troupe and even told the Australian Women's Weekly that she intended to create a new Indian ballet, ballet upon her return to Australia. So keep in mind, this is the 1930s when Australia was very much implementing the white Australia policy. Wow. Yeah, that's, yeah, amazing. On her way to Europe, Louisa and Misha had stopped in Bombay and Louisa was instantly enamoured. Then on her return to Australia, she was to have a two-week stopover in India, which ended up turning into five months, where she travelled to Kerala, where she began her study of complex traditions of Kathakali dance. I'm sorry if I'm butchering that. Louisa returned to Sydney in early 1938 and she and Misha produced one last ballet together called The Blue God about Indian gods and goddesses. After this, she dissolved her partnership with Misha Berlikov after seven years and then soon after returned to India. Over the next five years, she lived in India and learnt different techniques of sacred dance styles and continued to earn money by teaching classical ballet to the children of the Raj. She was way ahead of her time and became a great advocate and publicist for Indian dance, organised tours by dancing troops, worked with a filmmaker and published widely in the Indian press. In 1947, Louisa brought the young Kathakali dancer Shivaram to Australia and trained a group of Australian dancers to work with him. The following year, they introduced the dance to the British stage. For the Australian National Theatre in 1949, she presented Shivaram in a ballet she designed, which then went on to tour successfully in 1950. The performances toured to Japan, the United States and Canada, where they often took the form of a lecture demonstration in universities and galleries where Louisa provided the commentary. Mm. In 1951, she returned to India where she went to the mountain state of Manipur to learn third traditional sacred dance. During this time, she also organised for dancers and drummers from Manipur and Kerala to tour Australia, Japan and North America and introduce excerpts of the dance to country towns across Australia, then to New Zealand, England, Fiji and Canada. Wow. So she's spreading the love far and wide. She really is. And Mm. I just wouldn't have thought that... um... India would have been a place that a young single woman would be travelling to, like in, I don't mm. know, in the 40s, 50s. I know. Just seemed, yeah, like very um, brave to then, yeah, introduce that culture to Australia as well. Absolutely. Louise and Shivaram educated the public to appreciate Indian dance and taught hundreds of students. Not only were they touring, but from the late 1950s, she and Shivaram established a dance school in San Francisco. Wow. For about three years from 1965, Louisa lived in a yoga ashram in Montreal, Canada, before she returned to Australia and retired in 1968. However, she continued to train dancers in the Indian styles and facilitate several tours with Shivaram and Manipuri dancers to Australia right up until 1976. This brought Asian performing arts and culture to many school and university students who otherwise may not have had the opportunity. Throughout her retirement, Louisa did not rest and was actively involved in multicultural dance performances and festivals, especially at Monash University's Department of Music. Louisa Mary Lightfoot never married or had children, and she died at the age of 76 years old in Malvern in 1979. Her death was lamented not only in Australia but also in India, where they declared the death of Kathakali's Australian mother. Aww. Yeah. So she was... um, Way ahead of her time. Way ahead of her time. I mean, that would be a hard thing to do now mm. to introduce, you know, a, another culture's form of dance and then tour that and then, you know, take that to kind of 
regional mm. areas. I mean, it would be a difficult thing to do today. Yeah, let alone yeah. Back Imagine in the, going to like these small country towns. That's that's incredible. Amazing. Mm, so two dancers. Two dancers today. Which two is hilarious because one, I love it. I can't, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I can't do the hokey pokey. I can actually. Look, mm. as long as your face is dancing. Exactly. That's all, exactly. That's all we need. That's what we've learned today. Is mm. if you can dance in your face, <laughs> then you've got You're it good. going on. You've got it going on. <laughs> Don't worry about what's happening. You can't see us, but we're both doing the robot. We right are. Now. Our faces are very expressive. <laughs> you're probably you're actually lucky you can't see it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, thank you. That was great. Two lovely dancers and Lightfoot. I mean, come on. <gasps> she was born to do it, wasn't she? She was born to do it. I mean, not only that, she was the first woman to um, – Graduate from architecture at architecture. Melbourne Uni. Like she's just. I but yeah. I love it. Went, no, I'm not going to be an architect. Mm, I I'm know. Be a dancer and I'm yes. going to go Indian dancing. I know. That. So incredible. Amazing. That's it. We've done it. We've, we've another, another week done and dusted. Another two women for you to add to your arsenal of, well, what have women done? Mm. <laughs> Do all the things, like subscribe, tell your friends, tell your mum, tell your dog. Tell anyone that will listen. <laughs> Even if they don't, yell it at them. Just yell it at them. <laughs> and we will be back, same bat time, same bat station. See you then. then. Bye. Bye. Bye.